This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hi, everybody. It's a great honor to be here speaking to you. It's true. I'm leading a company that started at UC Santa Barbara, the Eucalyptus Project which, as you all know, stands for Elastic Utility Computing Architecture, linking your programs to useful systems. <laughs> That's what you guys invent here, distributed systems that can take over the world. So I'm here today to talk about entrepreneurialism and, and my own story and how I've done things and, and how things happen and how they didn't happen. And as John said, I have to leave at 6.30, so that's when I'm walking out. But I'm trying to stop before that so we can take questions and discuss whatever you would like to discuss. If you're interested in me beyond that, there's my email address, and there's my Twitter handler. Um, and I can give you a concession now. I don't mind if you use your laptops today. Uh, but if you tweet, could you please be kind to me? <laughs> Because sometimes when I talk to students, I get so excited that I start saying things that my PR team tells me I should never say. <laughs> so, but I'll try to be personal and tell you the truth, maybe not always the whole truth, but most of the truth, and, and share my experience with you on what I've done and, and, and what I'm doing. So I think that entrepreneurship is ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I remember when I was a young student and entrepreneur, how I looked up to those heroes. And you know, I could remember for months or years that I had met somebody like the CEO of Akamai or the VP of sales at some company. It was just amazing back in little Finland where I was that I had even bumped into such a person. And, and now I'm realizing that we are all just regular, normal people Everybody has lots and lots of weaknesses. And becoming a successful entrepreneur isn't, at the end of the day, about your skills or your abilities or your DNA. It's about what you refuse to give up on, what you will keep doing until you succeed. A little bit like once somebody asked Linus Torvalds, about open source and said, so Linus, when should I become an open source developer? You know, what, how should I think about it? And he said, you should become an open source developer if there's nothing else in the whole world you can think of doing. And it's a little bit the same with, with being an entrepreneur, that you shouldn't do it if you don't feel like it. I see so many who try but don't have that 
that mindset to never give up. And then they give up, and it wasn't a good experience. But at the same time, you can learn to become an entrepreneur. When I started, I did it just because it was fun. I did it because my friends were doing it. I was a student at Helsinki University of Technology, not Helsinki University. That's like mixing Berkeley and Stanford. Sorry. So Helsinki University of Technology, nowadays known as Aalto University. And I walked into a room where I had two of my friends were sitting and they were doing something. I said, hey guys, what are you up to? You look like you're starting a company or something. Well, that was exactly true. And so I became the third co-founder of the company. And I did it only for the excitement and because I never really planned my career. I never thought about becoming some distinguished businessman or something. I just did things that were fun and with people that I enjoyed uh, working with. And that's why it has taken such a long time for me to accomplish something. Um, John was very nice to me when he said I'm a serially successful entrepreneur, but I'm also serially unsuccessful. Um, when he mentioned match on sports, uh, it was the, one of the biggest dot-com companies in Finland, and it went straight into the wall and went bankrupt, um, which in Scandinavia is not a good thing because their bankruptcy doesn't correlate well with your career possibilities. And there was a difference in 2003 when I came to the Bay Area, and they said, wow, you've gone through a bankruptcy. That's good. You know how, how much it hurts. Um, so... <clears throat> And that's, that's what I think is very important here, that, that you can grow into this, you learn it, and you don't know when you are a kid who you really are and what your strengths are. And if, if you would see me when I was 12, I'm not sure you would, you would bet on me as a future CEO of MySQL, the world's most widely used open source database that got sold for a billion dollars. I don't think I looked like that when I was 12 or 14 or something. You know, I never really did any sports, so you wouldn't have noticed that I had a desire to win. And, and when I was a young kid, I was very stubborn. And I thought it was my problem because my siblings told me it was my problem and my parents told me it was my problem. But now in business, I realize that's my strength. Like Albert Einstein said, it's not that I'm smarter, it's that I stay with the problems longer. So, so what was a hindrance for me when I was a kid actually turned out to be a strength. And you may think that I'm a talkative, fun, uh, happy guy, extroverted and so on. But when I was younger, I wasn't that outgoing. Many times when I was somewhere, I was the little kid because I was with my older brother, with my older sister somewhere. And you know when you're a kid and, and you are with your older sibling, you're sort of hiding in the background. And you feel a little bit detached and on the outside. But what you learn is you learn to listen and you learn to observe. So I remember at the Boy Scout camp, we were sitting in this sailing boat in the middle of the night. Everybody was smoking tobacco back then. It was only tobacco, but there was a boat full of smoke. And I was sitting there, I was probably 14 year old, listening to the old guys talking. And, and I think these are the experiences that then allowed me to listen to others and to try to understand others. And that you must do in order to sell. If you're selling something, selling an idea, you are recruiting somebody, you are convincing somebody, you're doing marketing, you're doing PR, whatever you do, it's not about what you say, it is about how you listen and understand 
what they are looking for to hear or what they are hoping to hear, and you learn to deal, deal with the, the world. And, and you all have experiences of that sort where you, you walk around thinking that you are limited or you lack something or you have some defect. And it, five years from now, that may be your strength. And I think you can take any weakness and turn it into a strength. You can decide. Like, I'm a slow learner. I'm, I'm pretty sharp, but it takes time for me to learn things. But then I learn them very thoroughly. But I know other people are much faster. And it has guided me in my life. I, I need to be in, in business and places where it's OK to learn slowly, but learn deeply. And others need to learn very quickly. I could never be a, a, a trader, because I can't, I can't make decisions that fast. I learn slowly, and I make decisions slowly. I make decisions as, as late as I can. And many people say it's bad for business when you are like that. Maybe it is, but I'm here, I'm successful. Well, I've been successful, let's see. Let's see where this world is going and what's happening. But, but everybody is different, and, and Peter Drucker, who was absolutely the smartest guy ever on the matters of business and management and leadership, he said, the purpose of management is to make individual weaknesses irrelevant. That's very, very important. Because we all have weaknesses, and we must build teams where these weaknesses become irrelevant. You must hire people who are different than you, who have the strengths that you lack. And you must have the courage to admit to them that you have that weakness. Because they don't mind, and they see it anyhow. So if you deny it, you're just, you, you won't get anywhere. But if you admit it, you will have others helping you. And they don't mind helping you, because they need help where they are weak. Because there are no perfect human beings anywhere on the planet. Although we sometimes think so. We look up at these iconic business leaders, and we think they just get everything right. But they don't. They make mistakes all the time, and they have character flaws, and they have Ability, flaws in their abilities, and there are things where they lack the attention span, or they don't go deep enough, or whatever. There's always something with everybody. And, and so you shouldn't frame yourself too much into what you think you are. It's such a common misperception. And the younger they are, the more I hear it. You say, well, I'm like this, or I've never been able to do that. That is nonsense. You have a very plastic brain. Your cells will learn new tricks if you just stick to your problems long enough. You can learn anything you like. Spend 10,000 hours doing something, and you will be an expert. Spend less than 10,000 hours, and you won't be an expert. Some unique people learn things quickly, but, but they are few and, and far, far between. Most of us have to just work hard to get there. I used to be very naive. I'm still very naive, but I used to be even more naive when I was young. So I made all these mistakes. I signed up with people who didn't really live up to the, the rules I thought we had, the rules of engagement, because I was so naive. I couldn't protect myself against the bad outcome. But at the same time, because I'm so naive, I can think about big visions and, and big things happening in the future, because I'm not limited by too much critical thinking. So 
So it can be turned into a strength if you acknowledge it with yourself. And then I know that I need to develop my, my own strengths. So I used to be re a really crappy negotiator. You know, If somebody asked for a specific price, I would just pay it. I would forget that I could ask for a discount. And if I negotiated something, I, would just want, I just wanted to get the deal done quickly. So whatever they said, I would say, OK, yes, yes, yes. And that's so stupid. But I learned over time when I realized that a hindrance to my success would be, is this my inability to negotiate? So I said, OK, I'll learn to negotiate. And I did. And now I love doing it. It's wonderful. It's something of the most interesting you can do in the world. Because when you negotiate, you have to deal with another human being who's also trying to get the best. And you can close a deal only if you find some benefit for both that they think they got, sort of they got more benefit than they asked for. So you must find this universe where you think you won and they think they won. Otherwise, you won't have a deal. And I'm very proud. I'll talk about eucalyptus. But we just signed a partnership with Amazon Web Services. Nobody else has a partnership like that. We worked on it for a long, long time. And now we have it. We're not the biggest company. We are not the, the most famous company. But we had everything right. And we made sure that we had for them something really valuable, and that they had for us something really valuable. So even if there was a lot of give and take, we ended up signing a deal. And it can have huge positive impact on the business. And now I love doing it. But I didn't love doing it when I was your age. If you would have asked me then to describe myself when I'm 49, I wouldn't have described a person like this. So that's why I think it's, it's just very important to be mindful of who you are and what you think are your strengths and not feel that you're limited in any way. Of course you're limited. I mean, we are human beings after all. So we have lots of limitations. But the limitations are much farther out than you would ever believe. And if you just stick to the problems, you can do anything. You can learn to program if you weren't a programmer. And you can learn business if you were a programmer. And you can learn to be extroverted if you were introverted. Or you can turn introversion into a strength or whatever it is. It can be done. But the, the problem is that, or why you need patience, is that changes to the better happen slowly. And changes to the worse happen quickly. So you can ruin something just overnight. One stupid word somewhere, and you know, you lost a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something. Whatever it is, suddenly it's lost. But it takes a long time to build it back up. But it can be done. But that's why also we must always keep building and improving. Because it takes such a long time to improve things. But it takes a short time to destroy something. And that's why in the industry we say that it takes 10 years to build an overnight success, or longer. MySQL was sold for a billion dollars to Sun Microsystems in 2008. And in 2001, when I joined, it was 12 people. There wasn't even a business. There wasn't a company. There were, was a number of small companies. But there was just a product and a little bit of consulting revenues, a little bit of other revenues, but not much. And then we built it from there. But the founders of the technology had started coding in 1995. So when I joined, it was already six years into development. And before that, they had worked together since 1983. You know, there was such a year once. 
1983. That's when they started work and where did they start working together? Well, they were students at one at Helsinki University of Technology, one was in Stockholm, one in Uppsala in Sweden. That's when they got together starting doing things and 12 years later they decided to take their skill and start coding on a database. Six more years after that, we started building a business and seven more years and we sold it for a billion. Now, of course, the world is changing because you all know Instagram and I'm, you know, I guess, I guess MySQL is the database, the database of Instagrams or something, but Instagram did it in one or two years, so it's amazing how some things can move faster, but usually it takes a very long time to produce something big. But let me talk a little bit about the business I am in, because I promised to do that. So I'm CEO of Eucalyptus Systems, which started in 2007 as a, an NSF-funded research project here at UCSB. Professor Wolski and his five postgrads decided to build a modern new compute environment for certain advanced applications. And they said, hmm, how do we turn this into a cloud application? If we emulate the same API, the same interface that Amazon Web Services is using, that will be a cloud. And they did so, and they built Eucalyptus, and it became immensely popular among advanced users, governments, uh, research institutions, high-performance computing, and so on, all over the world. And in 2009, these six co-founders, plus a seventh, decided to spin it out and become entrepreneurs. So these were people who had come here to study, to do their PhD, perhaps become researchers and professors and everything, and suddenly they decided to become entrepreneurs. And there were seven of them. I think it's fantastic. It tells something about the Eucalyptus company culture. We're a team-oriented company. It's not just one guy. From the very beginning, six technical and one non-technical co-founder. And very international. So of these six techies, we have five nationalities. A Russian, a Pole, an Italian, an Indian, and two Americans. And the two Americans are a little bit Polish and a little bit Finnish. <laughs> and now we have at Eucalyptus, I think, 14 different nationalities. Our head of sales is from Africa, our CFO is from China, and our CEO is from Finland. So we're building a global company, and we have what is called an on-premise cloud platform. We have software that we install on your computers and turn your computers into your own cloud. Well, that's a contradiction in terms in itself because, uh, Martin, cloud means that it's out there, that I don't have any hardware. And we say, yes, but this is a private cloud. And the easiest way for me to explain it is that imagine that Amazon Web Services, and I'm assuming you all know what that is, Amazon EC2 and S3, you know, using, running computing on Amazon. Imagine that that's like Starbucks or Pete's Coffee. You can always go there, you buy the coffee, you know exactly what it will cost. You can buy one cup or a million cups. They have endless capacity. It's open all the time. But once you go home, when you are a successful business person, you say, I love coffee so much, I need an espresso machine at home. So you buy an expensive espresso machine and you, you brew your own coffee. It still is the coffee, but it's under your control, within your own walls, it's yours. Well, that's what we do. We, we are the makers of espresso machines, as it were. 
So we make software that allow people to have their own private clouds on-premise inside the firewall. So why do people need that? Well, some just do. They say, I need the elasticity and all the modern features of a cloud, but I must protect it inside my firewall. I cannot let customer data go out. I need to be in charge. I need to be in control. I need to just adjust it more than I can at Starbucks. At Starbucks, they have a long list of coffees you can buy, but it still is not as wide as your own espresso machine where you choose the beans and you choose the everything. So that's what we do, and it's used by companies who are addicted to computing, just like espresso machines are used by people who are addicted to coffee, like me. So web companies who do a lot of, of transactional uh, work in, in web applications, they use Eucalyptus. So when you go to Puma.com and you buy the most wonderful sporting shoes, rest assured, you are running on Eucalyptus, and if the website serves you well, it's partly because Eucalyptus is the platform that uh, orchestrates the resources. So Eucalyptus looks at the web traffic and figures out which servers should work on which task. That's a, uh, in a, a general description of what we do. So that's one. Uh, Plinga leading uh, gaming site in Europe. They launch their games on Amazon. Then when they, when they don't know how popular they will be, when, they, when the workload starts settling down and they know roughly how much volume it will take, they move them back into Eucalyptus Cloud and then they can move them back out again. And because we chose the exact same application programming interface, API, as Amazon, you can really move workloads back and forth. So what runs on Amazon runs on Eucalyptus. What runs on Eucalyptus runs on Amazon. And then government agencies who are using us, USDA, they have an advanced cloud application serving, serving farmers all over the US. Farmers with their smartphones can get location-specific irrigation, erosion, weather information, wherever they are in their fields. And that's served by a eucalyptus cloud. The interesting point with them is they couldn't afford new hardware. So they took all the old servers they could find and put them together into a cloud, installed eucalyptus on top of it, and got a very cost-effective cloud where nobody knows that it's actually running on old PCs and old servers that they had no use for. So we enable people to give old hardware more lifetime um, by covering them with our software and then to the application it looks like a wonderful elastic modern cloud. So that's what we do at Eucalyptus. We started here, we have most of our people next door practically on Hollister Avenue here in Golita, but we are expanding worldwide. We have a team in China, we have a team in India, we have a team in the UK and in Germany. And we have employees in 10 states here in the US. Growing rapidly, hiring, eucalyptus.com slash careers. Um, and if you're looking for a job, this is sort of just a parenthetical comment here, but if you really look for a job in a company, don't send standardized job applications where you talk about how good you are and, well, and those things. But study the company and write an application that is designed for that very company. And you don't need to understand what it's doing, but if you read their website and say, think, okay, this is their challenge, this is what they're trying to do, this is what I have to learn. If I get a job application where somebody says, dear Eucalyptus, I would love to work for you 
Uh, I don't know how to sell yet, but I'm a quick learner. I've studied this, I've read this book. It seems like you are doing this and you might need this. If there's some sort of intelligent thinking in the application, it gets a much higher score than any other uh, application, even if you are wrong. Like, even if you're suggesting something that we are not doing, I'm still thinking, hey, here's a person who is using her or his intelligence to figure out what we need to do. Here's a person who's thinking about the best of the company and not the best of, of him or herself. Because I know for myself, at that age, we're pretty sort of uh, busy with ourselves when we are, have young age. We think we are really good guys and we understand everything and we're thinking, when can, I, when can I be a director and when can I be a VP? And I was the same. That was all I was interested in. But it's silly and it doesn't really work. If you can detach from that and trust that you will get those wonderful job titles and those nice business cards and the nice company phone, and you just focus on what does this company really, really need from me and wh what can I do? That's a way to land the best jobs. irrespective of which company you are, you are applying for. Because when I say, come and, and look for jobs at Eucalyptus, of course, I'm very happy when we get a ton of applications. But we get perhaps 100 applications for every job opening we have. So how do we determine among 100 who the best one is? We probably make mistakes because we read the resumes quickly. And we pay attention to just some small things. If there's a typo, we think, OK, a typo can be forgiven, but given that I have 99 other resumes, I don't have to forgive a typo, so discard it. And if it doesn't present the things clearly, or if it talks about the wrong things, or if somebody doesn't talk exactly about the, the area we talk about, then we discard them. So this is just generic advice to you when you, when you apply for jobs. If you spend that time on making a very specific job application, you make sure it's perfect. You, you increase your chances enormously. Of course, I'm a huge believer in UC Santa Barbara, so I believe you will all have fantastic careers, and you will go out and build the most amazing companies in the world, and you look back and say, Eucalyptus was just this tiny little software company, but we built this multi-billion dollar empire, so I'm sure you will do that. And I'll be very happy, because UCSB is also a shareholder in Eucalyptus, so... <laughs> <laughs> Not that it will give us any other benefit, but, but we have a very close relationship. So back to what I was talking about. I was talking about Eucalyptus. That's what we are doing. We are a reasonably small startup company. As I said, we started in 2009 as an enterprise. I joined in 2010, two years ago, as CEO, and I was employee number 15. I live in the Bay Area. I promised my kids that we wouldn't move, so I commute in here as often as I'm needed. But it's a global business, so I'm needed in China and India and all these places. So, so we really try to run it as a global distributed organization. Uh, we have about 80 employees at this point all over the world. We are trying to become one of the most significant vendors of infrastructure software of these ages. And we think it's possible, or we dream about it at least. We have a plan for how to build this and become a really significant player. Because we have seen that when big shifts happen, it is always the new guys who win. In the early 80s, when the PC was invented, before that we didn't have PCs. We had mini machines and, and mainframes, but there were no PCs. 
And the PC was invented, and IBM started producing them. And Microsoft was this tiny startup who built the operating system. And now you see that the winners from that time were all new companies. Microsoft was a tiny startup at the time, and all the others, uh, Adobe, uh, Lotus, some of them have been acquired by others, others haven't. But it created a whole new industry. And then in the mid-90s, somebody started breaking this, uh, uh, the world of the, of the PC. The architecture from that PC era was called client-server. It was a big, big thing back then. I came into the software industry in the 80s and we thought client-server meant you have a client and a server. Because before that, that's not how you did it. You had just a server and then you had a stupid terminal. But with PCs, you had a client with intelligence and a server with intelligence. So anyhow, that was a new way of building applications. But in the mid-90s, the client was disrupted because somebody invented the World Wide Web. And suddenly, you didn't need to run your application on your PC, but you ran it through a browser and you just used it as a service. And what happened? Again, we got massive companies who were startups just like you. Google, eBay, Yahoo, all these companies. They didn't exist before that. And this is also what gave MySQL the opportunity, because MySQL is a database focused on the web market, but Oracle and the other guys didn't. They didn't know how to sell because their pricing was per human user. And on the web, you have 100 million human users, so it becomes expensive. So anyhow, so that was a big change in the industry, and again, the new guys won. And we believe that now, in this, that's why I talk about client-server. The client side got broken by the web, but the server architecture remained the same. Now as we're going into cloud computing, also the backend, the server architecture is being broken and rebuilt. And we believe this means that there are innovative new companies who will now grow, and 10, 20 years from now will look back and think that they always existed because they are so massive. And we are intent on being one of them at Eucalyptus. We think we have the smarts to build software that turns everybody's computers into a cloud, so that you have your own private cloud. Then, of course, we believe that the public cloud will be even larger. So we're not saying that, that the private would be a bigger portion. We think the public cloud actually will be a larger one. But our mission is to make sure that your hardware is cloud-enabled and operates as a cloud. And that's the software we are doing. It's very complex, distributed computing really difficult to develop. I'm happy I'm just the CEO. That's the easiest job because our developers are working with really hard problems when they try to test software, you know, a set of web services across a lot of different machines that behave differently and you must behave con uh, maintain consistency and keep latency down um, in a, uh, in a uh, real-time mission-critical environment. So that's Eucalyptus. Before that, I was CEO of MySQL, as I told you, from 2001 to 2008. And then I stayed a year with Sun as senior vice president of the database business. And, and I thought I would share some stories from, from the MySQL days. I joined in the beginning of 2001. I had known the founders since 1981, actually, because it turned out that one of the founders studied technical physics at Helsinki University of Technology just like I did at, you know, same year. So we knew each other when we'd been playing poker for many years. So he called me one day and said, Martin, we need a CEO and we think it's you. And I said, no, 
That was my first response. Uh, but I said, okay, I can, I can come in and help you a little bit with the strategy. And because I thought I knew something about strategy at the time. I'm not sure it's true, but I thought I did. And why they called me? I was probably the only person they knew who had ever been a CEO of anything. Um, I had just come out of this um, sports betting company that went bankrupt. Um, so I was a little bit vulnerable and wounded. Um, <clears throat> but I started helping them with the strategy in 2001. And then at some point I realized this can be a huge opportunity. There were 12 people roughly spread over three different companies. We brought it all together. We started working on it. We got VCs very interested. They wanted to invest customers. I remember we closed a deal with Compaq, a deal worth $15,000. We were just celebrating for days. That was such a huge deal to close with an American company. 15000 We felt it was huge. So in, in the summer of 2001, we got term sheets from investors to make a first investment in the company so we could expand. We signed the term sheet. And the next week, I traveled to the United States to negotiate with a company that had tried to become a partner of MySQL and where our founders had written a preliminary partnership agreement with them. And I negotiated with them for a few days. I had a co-founder with me on the last day. And it was tense, because they didn't, they didn't really like the fact that suddenly there was a CEO in the company trying to build a business. They would have liked to see MySQL as a research team hidden in Scandinavia. So on the last day, they said, hey, can we take a break here in the negotiations? And we're like, yeah, sure, but we need to really get to, to an agreement very soon. But we took a two-hour break, and David and I went back to our hotel. Then we came back 4 or 5 PM on Friday afternoon to their offices in, near Boston. And the person meeting us on their campus was a local sheriff. And he said, are you David Axmark and Martin Mikos? I said, yeah, sure. And he handed us yellow envelopes and said, you have been served. They sued us in the US court of law. This company that didn't really exist yet, we were operating out of three companies. We had a term sheet of investors. We had practically no money. And we got sued in the US by a publicly listed company for unfair trade practices and a contract violation or something. In our mind, complete bogus. So we were shocked. Well, we went back to the hotel and sort of had made fun of it. We took these criminal pictures, you know, pri <laughs> jail pictures of each other showing the, the lawsuit. But, but it was sort of nervous laughter. And, and then we traveled back, and I contacted our chairman and said, what do we do now? No VC will give us any money when we have to fight a lawsuit in the US. Even if we win, it can take years. At that point, MySQL could have died as a company. But our chairman, he was a smart guy. He said, Martin, we must be very strategic now. And then we brainstormed a little bit. We went back to all the VCs and said, dear VCs, we have good news and bad news. Bad news? We've been sued in the US. Good news, we are giving you twice as many shares for your money. We're cutting our valuation in half, voluntarily. And now, dear investors who are from Norway, Sweden, and Finland, the Nordic pride is at stake. You must not pull out now. 
you must never let a big, bad American company do this to you. <laughs> and we used all the persuasive power we could, and they didn't pull out. They all signed and invested. We took an investment of 2 million euros. We spent 1.6 million on the lawsuit. And we won. We settled it ultimately because we were going to win it. We didn't get all the money back, but it was the best marketing campaign ever. <laughs> because everybody saw this, and everybody knew that we were the, the small, nice guys from Scandinavia, unjustly attacked by this greedy company. And it turned the whole world against them and for us. So, but those are scary moments. It, you know, you don't know whether you will really succeed. And, and I don't think you will find any successful company that hasn't gone through those moments where you, you are ready to give up. And that's why you must have that strength to never give up. You must somehow believe in yourself more than you really should. But then you must be arrogant. You must also know when to quit. So, like all advice, it goes both ways. On the one hand, you must never give up. On the other hand, you mustn't be so stubborn that you don't listen to signals from the market if it is time to move on. Sometimes you really need to stop doing something. But, <coughs> but this moment showed us that you just must have a belief, and you must remember that <coughs> whatever state your company is in, Although there are a million ways in which it can fail, there are always several ways in which it can succeed. <clears throat> always. And always more than one. And I believe in this completely. And of course, it can never be proved. But I, I believe that there's always a way out, and there is always more than one way out, if you just believe in it. So you must have this amazing ability to believe. And not many people have that. <clears throat> You know, managing your own nerves is perhaps the most important thing you can do in your life. To have that strength to say, okay, so this company might be wiped out tomorrow, but I'll just take a deep breath and go out and have a beer and pizza with my friends and have fun and relax a little bit. To have that presence and strength and confidence to keep going even when rationally you shouldn't. <clears throat> Uh, is really important. But it doesn't always, it's not always enough. You need more than that. You need somebody who believes in you even more than you believe in yourself. And of course, that happened at MySQL as well. <clears throat> we had this very close relationship and dependency on a piece of technology called InnoDB. And some of you may know it if you are users of MySQL. A another Finnish company. And we were going to buy them. And we practically had built the business for Heike, the founder, and his two or three guys. So we said, hey, we'd like to buy you and get you on board here with MySQL. And you can be a shareholder. And this will be massive and fantastic. And we di discussed and negotiated for nearly a year. But, but he wasn't sure. And he wanted to be independent. And he wasn't sure if he could trust us. And he wasn't sure how much he should charge. And he just wasn't comfortable with a negotiation. Like many of you don't like to negotiate, especially if you're really technical. You just like to deal with the technical stuff, and then you hope that the rest of the world will sort itself out. 
So we did this, and we had an offer for him, and, and he accepted it. And then we started negotiating and said, no, no, this is not what I asked for. I said, OK, what did you ask for? He said, well, I don't, I don't know exactly. I said, well, do you know roughly? But you don't say that. They get, you know, it's offensive to say it. And I was probably a little bit pushy. So next day, his brother calls me and says, Martin, we will do an auction. We will sell the company at an auction. I said, what is this, guys? We've been working with you for years. We built your business. We're ready to pay you what you're asking for. Why do an auction? We can't do an auction. We're a small company like you. I said, we are doing an auction. And they did. They got an offer from Oracle, and they took it. So suddenly, when we were building our business, and we thought that this very vital component in our product would be part of us, suddenly it was owned by our competitor. And I was in London. We had a board meeting. The board meeting had been fantastic. We were out having dinner. And I remember one of these said, Martin, when can we go public? And at that point, I get a phone call. And somebody tells me about this news. And it was completely devastating. The, the president of Oracle, Charles Phillips, who is an amazing gentleman, he called me that evening and said, Martin, I wanted to let you know that we bought InnoDB, but we didn't buy it to slow you down. So the next day, I flew back to the US, and that was the worst flight I've ever been on. You know, I was thinking that this business is over. A key piece of our technology is with our competitor. We have no credibility in the market. Everybody needs InnoDB. They can do whatever they want with it. It will just destroy our business. And I was ready to completely give up. And that's why it was important that others believed in me more than I did. So when I landed in San Francisco, our executive team had already been at work. And they came home to me. We had a, a strategy session at our home on a Saturday and Sunday and said, Martin, we completely believe in you, and we stand behind you. We'll support you. Here's our plan for how to deal with it. Attack is the best defense. Here's our new pluggable storage engine architecture, which will allow any component to be connected to MySQL. And this one that was acquired is just one out of many. And my management team got me back on my feet over that session, over a few hours. And on Monday, when we were interviewed by the press and they said, what is this? Will this kill you? We gave to the press this statement. We said, and you know, MySQL's mascot and logo is a dolphin. <clears throat> and we said, trying to kill MySQL by buying InnoDB is like trying to kill a dolphin by drinking the ocean. And that was such a powerful message that it went all over the world. Everybody quoted it. Everybody repeated it all over the world. And it didn't take more than a few weeks. And suddenly, there were three other projects developing alternative technologies for MySQL. And then we started driving that initiative, the pluggable storage engine architecture. And we had lots of storage engines. And we realized that this was a decision we should have made anyhow. We were stupid to not make the architecture pluggable long before we did. But this forced us to do it, and we managed over time to turn it into a strength of MySQL. So much so that next year, when we had our users conference, it turned out that Oracle really didn't do it to slow us down. They never did any, any harm to us. So when we had our users conference, of course, they didn't like to be shown as, as really endorsing us. But at our users conference, we surprised them by announcing them MySQL Partner of the Year. 
and we forced them up on stage to receive the prize. And that again showed how we turned around the situation and showed that we had the guts to play that game. And then people were fine and they realized it's open source software, it doesn't matter who owns it, we trust MySQL, and the business kept growing. But it was a very scary moment and I for a moment lost faith in myself. I was, I was asking myself whether I should resign voluntarily because I had screwed it up for all my colleagues, all the people I had hired into the company, I had betrayed them by not being capable of closing the most important deal that we had. So it was really scary and really traumatic that, that week and the moment when it happened. But it was my executives who stood up and said, Martin, we trust you, we will work with you on this. In reality, did they really trust me? Who knows? <laughs> but I was ready to take any statement at that moment, whether they really trusted me or not. And I don't know whether they were already sending resumes to other companies, and I never want to know. Because it all turned out well, and after that we had the best team ever, because this moment had, had sort of solidified the management of the company in an amazing way. But it could have, it could have derailed the whole thing. So that's why every time when there, something happens, I now look back and say, okay, I've gone through this before. It looks really, really, really bad. But when something really, really bad happens, there's always something good hiding somewhere. If you just can have the patience and calmness to identify it and see it. And sometimes you don't. So, that's why before I did MySQL, I did six different startups, as we talked about. Two of them went out of business, two got acquired, and two sort of plateaued on a small level. So they're still around, but they're small businesses. So I've seen things that have worked and things that haven't worked, and I have at times given up. And I'm still looking back at my career not knowing whether I gave up at the right time. So in some, when I look at it, I say, I should have given up much earlier because it was hopeless. And in others, I say, if I had kept going, it could have succeeded even better than it did. And then when you do this back and forth enough, then at some point you just have to live with whatever it is because you can't change it anymore. And you must note that you learn something every single time. You know, either you win or you learn. And I couldn't be the CEO of Eucalyptus that I am now if I hadn't done every single of those companies that I did, and the telecom one and software, and the, the sports betting thing, and the other database company, and the project management software, and all those things that we did. So, so that's why I like this quote by somebody wise where it says, uh, if it happens, it's good. If it doesn't happen, it's better. And whatever happens is best. Meaning, you are influencing the world as much as you can, but once it's beyond your influence, you just must live with it. And there is something good in everything. There's a learning when it's at worst. And now I'm so confident in many situations where I wasn't confident before, because I've seen much worse. And we've had some scary moments at Eucalyptus, and I'm sure we'll keep having them. And I have colleagues who come to me and say, Martin, what does this mean? What does the CEO now think? And I'm sitting and saying, okay, could be much, much worse. Let's get our heads together and decide on what to do next and how to figure it out. 
So I find that that's very, very important in any business you do to, to get there. And again, it's all about managing yourself. Figuring out who you are, how, where you're strong, where you're weak, how you deal with your own freaking out moments, how you manage yourself, how you program yourself, how you, how you, you can start the day by demanding a lot of yourself, but you must end the day being nice to yourself. You must accept your weaknesses so that you can deal with them. Because otherwise, next morning when you wake up, you're not ready for the big challenges. But then, of course, you shouldn't be reckless or irresponsible. You need to, to live up to your promises. But still, when you've done your best, you have the right to be happy and content with yourself every night when you go to bed, even if it is 3 AM and then you need to get up at 5 AM to catch a flight somewhere. But you still have that, that cycle. I think it's, it's very important, because being an entrepreneur is stressful, and you have lots of worries all the time. You have no idea where it will end. It looks good on the outside and everybody's doing great PR and marketing, but there's always some big worry somewhere. Will we get the software ready? Will it work? Will this customer be successful? What will this competitor do? What if this changes? What if the industry landscape changes? What do we do then? Um, so there's, there's a lot of, of work of, of that sort. So from here, let me switch to a completely other topic that I like talking about, um, which is the, the global distributed organization. At MySQL, we had, when we had 500 people working in our group, 70% worked from home. 70% in 32 countries, 18 time zones. So we had what I would call a completely distributed organization. People worked from home. And then people say, how is this possible, Martin? How, can you, how could you run anything? How could you make decisions? How did you know that people worked? But for us, it was a fantastic model. And I don't assume that it will work for everybody in the world. I do think there are people and there are times when you really need to be in the same room, and you really need the physical presence of other people. But there's also lots of work, lots of people, lots of situations where you don't need to do that. And we learned the tricks of how to manage people in all these countries with all these different cultures. And we did it by going all in. We did everything online. If we had a, a meeting, an in-person meeting, we'd always document it online. We'd keep an IRC line open. We would make sure that it was accessible also on the web. We communicated by email, by RC, by telephone, and made sure that whatever happened was put online. Not just the professional selves, but the personal selves. Because when you work in an office, you do your business, and then you go to the coffee room or somewhere, and there you talk personal matters. If you work in a distributed organization, all of that has to be online. So you have to establish ways for people to be buddies and be personable on, online um, as well. And we did that. We shared everything over email. I would send out monthly emails to everybody about the company and what we're doing and our struggles and our victories. And people would send back their comments. Uh, we did something we called Radio Sakila. Sakila was the name of our dolphin mascot. So Radio Sakila was a monthly conference call with everybody in the whole company. But just me and a few other people had non-muted phones. Everybody else was muted. But they were on IRC. 
internet relay chat. So I was speaking, I had a script talking about the strategy and how we are doing, and people were hanging out on IRC, commenting with each other, saying, okay, Martin is talking again, and you know, blah, 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 and he's wrong, and why is he saying that? So lots of background chatter, and then questions for me. So I would speak on the phone and look, look at the IRC channel to see the questions. And it's amazing when you have an international group in that many don't really feel comfortable speaking English on a phone, but everybody is comfortable on IRC irrespective of nationality. So the Russians and the Chinese and the Argentinians and everybody was there, and it's an equal, equal playing ground where everybody could communicate. So it was a fantastic way of getting everybody, everybody together. And it was funny, when I sent my monthly emails, I slowly learned the differences of cultures. And I will now use two stereotypes, but it's not that easy. But, but basically, when I wrote an email to the staff, if I didn't have lots of superlatives and yay and victory, then the Californians wouldn't really take it well. Because they love to hear good news and they love to exaggerate and everything must be huge. <laughs> but if I did just that, then the Russians and the Scandinavians were upset with me because they felt I was just delusional and sugarcoating. <laughs> So every time I said something, I had to combine both. I said, we did this million dollar deal and it's fantastic, isn't it? And then, but hey, let's remember we have bugs in the software. <laughs> or, you know, always coupling them like that to, to appeal to the different cultures that we have. And of course, it's not just Russians and Americans and they are pessimistic Californians and they're very optimistic Russians. But, but you see the difference in culture and I love the challenge and trying to stitch together all these different types. You have the Israelis who say their, their viewpoint immediately. And then you have the Scandinavians who might never say their viewpoint. And then you have those who always try to be nice to their boss. And then you have those who are rebellious and are never nice to their boss. And all of that that you need to, to stitch together. But it works, and you can do it online. So it's not easy, but it works. And I can tell you, when people ask, how do you know that they work when they are not in an office. I say, how do you know in an office that somebody is working? Because you don't. Much easier to fake it in an office. In an office, dress nicely, smile at the boss, go to every meeting, ask a question every time when a question is supposed to be asked. People think you are very productive. And send all kinds of emails where you CC everybody. <laughs> and you look like you're product productive. When you work from home, you don't have those tools at your disposal. Your only output is your real output. The deals you close, the, the transactions you put into bookkeeping, the whatever it is, the technical support you provide. And suddenly it becomes sort of more brutal. We're really measuring what you do. But you have the freedom. You can go out in the middle of the day uh, playing with your kids or out with your dog, and then you work later or earlier, and you have all that freedom. If you have the ability to manage yourself, which not everybody has, and not everybody young has. So this tends to work better with those who have work experience, uh, as specifically have work experience. Young people sometimes don't have that rigor of working, and sometimes they go too far in. So if you have an employee working from home who has nothing else, no girlfriend, boyfriend, cat, dog, hobby, or a, a house that needs a, a constant repair, or a car that needs constant repair, that's bad. Because you need to be taken out of your work environment. If you work at home and that's all you do, 
at some point you go crazy because it's too much. So you need the distraction. You need something or somebody who takes you out of it certain times and ensures that you are a regular good human being as well. But then it's a fantastic model. And I know so many people who will never work in an office anymore. Offices are so last century. <laughs> and they were invented just a few hundred years ago. With the Industrial Revolution, that's when we got offices. Before that, people didn't see a difference between work time and free time. Fishermen, farmers, all of those, they don't have a distinction. They live where they work, and they work where they live. And when they need to work, they work. And when they can be free, they are free. They don't try to segregate it and box it in and say, this is my work time, and this is my professional uh, me, and this is my personal me. It's the same person. So with the Industrial Revolution, I think we went a little bit in the wrong direction. And luckily, we now have technology to allow us to go back to the right direction. And you can live in a town anywhere in the world. And at Eucalyptus, we have a person living in the state of Washington in one of the natural parks. She lives up there in a place that in the winter has six miles to the closest road. So she needs a snowmobile to get there if she goes somewhere. But she can work for Eucalyptus because she's online. She has electricity. We don't care where she is. And of course, she has a wonderful quality of life out there. She has exactly the life she wants, and she gets to work for one of the hottest software companies in the industry. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.